Hey, everybody. Absolutely fantastic episode of the Bitcoin show today. We had Alex Gladstein on. Alex is the chief strategy officer at the Human Rights Foundation and a vocal advocate for Bitcoin and its potential as a tool for freedom and human rights. Talk about all sorts of different things like the United States monetary policy on the rest of the world, how Bitcoin is being adopted in third world and developing nations, hyperinflation right now and what it means for Bitcoin and the adoption of Bitcoin. I mean, we cover a lot of stuff. It's a great, great, great episode. I really recommend listening uh, you know, to it and listening to Alex in general. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Bitcoin Show. This is the weekly show that every single Tuesday we host right here on Twitter Spaces, normally at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Today, we're starting a little bit late at 4 p.m. The show is also available on Apple, Spotify, podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And the show is designed to discuss all things Bitcoin, past, present, and future. Make sure you follow the Bitcoin Show Twitter account that's hosting the show to stay up to date with all things related to the Bitcoin Show. I'm your host, P.O., here with co-host Aubrey Strobel, marketing partner at Trust Machines, host of The Observation, big-time Bitcoin content creator in her own right, and the former head of communications at Lolly, and now filmmaker, soon to be acclaimed filmmaker, I'm sure, once the film is actually released, uh, widely released, I should say. Aubrey, how's it going? <laughs> it's going good. Uh, yeah, we just announced that um, that Lucker Feeling is going to be uh, screened in New York next week. So if you are in the New York City area, this is my shameless shill to come see the show. It's free. Um, it's for a good cause. It's about hope um, and how this community is kind of you know accepting Bitcoin um, and has some surf elements to it. So if you are if you are in New York City, uh, come check it out. It'll be at the Angelica Film Center. Incredible! I got to get a ticket for sure. Uh, and you know I'll I'll pull up and hang ten if it's a surf movie. You know. <laughs> uh, my other co-host it's a combo. It's a combo of Bitcoin. <laughs> Bitcoin surf, and there we go. Uh, we got Trevor Owens, other co-host of the show, an investor in many Bitcoin and crypto startups, a partner at Bitcoin Frontier Fund, CEO of Ninja Alerts, and host of The Ordinal Show, another popular Twitter spaces show, very talented host in his own right. Trevor, how's it going? Going well. Super excited for this conversation with Alex. Alex, thanks for joining us. Looking forward to picking your brain, and congratulations, Aubrey. That's awesome to hear about the, uh, the film there. Um, wish I could go. And and that leads me to our very special guest today. We have Alex Gladstein. Alex is the chief strategy officer at the Human Rights Foundation and a vocal advocate for Bitcoin as a tool for freedom and human rights. Alex is a contributor to Bitcoin Magazine. He frequently shares his thoughts on Bitcoin on Twitter and other mediums. Uh, he's most recently he recently wrote "Check Your Financial Privilege," a book that describes the financial advantages that individuals born into a reserve currency like the euro, yen, or pound have, uh, and and really just the financial privilege over eighty nine percent of the world population. Alex, thank you. So so much for joining the show today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So, uh, if anyone has any questions or comments for Alex, uh, you know, let us know in the comments. Just click the purple button on the bottom right uh, corner of the screen, and at the end of the show, uh, we'll let some people come on stage and ask Alex questions directly. Uh, just to kick things off, Alex, um, you know, wanted to talk about you know your ideas about using Bitcoin as a hedge against hyperinflation and corrupt uh, corrupt monetary practices. You gave a really great presentation about the IMF. Uh, you know, and the World Bank's practices during Bitcoin Miami in May. Um, you know, I can kind of summarize that, but I would just love to know. Um, you know, right now, July twenty twenty three. Mm. Uh, you, yeah, like, how are you thinking about this this concept? Uh, well, I, I continue to think that human rights and money are so intimately intertwined, and that the human rights community doesn't really grok this. Uh, writ large, does not really understand this. And the money community, meaning like finance, uh, Wall Street, also does not understand it from the reverse angle. So you have a financial industry that doesn't really understand that human rights are intimately related to what they're working on. And then you have a human rights complex that also, also does not understand that currency and payments are very, very, very key to what they're doing. 
So I, I'm just kind of wor working at the intersection of these two very important fields and trying to bring folks together from those fields to uh, learn from each other, talk to each other, meet each other, and find out that they're they're much closer uh, <laughs> than 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 maybe they think they are together. Awesome, and obviously this is your line of work. Even you know, as a, a host of Bitcoin and, and crypto, you know, Web three podcast myself, I found that there's a pretty major disconnect when I bring up the idea, you know, of uh, other countries not having stable currencies and us being able to actually learn from the history of currency devaluation in other countries. I mean, examples are, are pretty easy to come up with: Nigeria, Argentina, Brazil, plenty of other. You know, Weimar Germany uh, is brought up a lot when it when you're discussing uh, Bitcoin and, and just the history of currency devaluation. You know, do you find that it's hard for Americans to, to really properly grasp that? Is there, is there resistance that you detect when you talk about that concept? I, I, yeah, I think that financial privilege is extremely strong and it blinds the media and the experts that we rely on. Um, and it sort of prevents us from having a serious conversation about the role of money in the world because the just the simple fact that like so much of the world the the, the super majority of the world relies on weak currencies that are exploited and debased and you know where where their wages are devalued constantly um is is just not really talked about um i think that the role of the us is uh you know let's say guarantor of the world financial system um, post 44 is, is not really thought about in terms of like when we make decisions about money, the rules of money, the cost of capital that impacts the world. And that's never really in the media. Like if you read the Washington post or New York times or financial times, etc., there aren't that many stories about the impact of rising interest rates on, let's say Bangladesh. Um, you, you hear a lot about the impact of rates in our own countries in America, let's say. Um, on the mortgage market or, or uh, on bonds, etc. Um, but and, and then you'll see like stories separately about the collapse of regimes, like in Sri Lanka, or the you know failure of some countries to pay their debts back. But there's not a lot of people writing about the fact that these things are connected. And today, you know, we live in a world dominated by the dollar, where the people who issue the dollar really make the rules about the, the cost of capital for the planet and you know where a small group of unelected largely very elderly wealthy white men in the Washington Virginia area you know basically get together and make decisions that that impact every single person in Nigeria and India I, I just find this to be a very sort of primitive medieval um, construct and I'm really excited about a world where the creation of money is taken out of the hands of bureaucrats uh, completely and and where we all use a monetary system that has at its root um, a neutral open currency that's the same same rules for everybody. I think that that's what got me really excited about Bitcoin. Um, and and I didn't start there um, thinking about central banking. I, I I started talking to activists. So I worked for the Human Rights Foundation for ten years, helping people living under closed societies. By our count, it's 5.8 billion people who live under an authoritarian regime of some kind. That now, now that India we classify as an authoritarian regime, unfortunately, um, so that number grew a lot in the last year. Uh, close to 100 countries, you know, 70 some odd percent of the world's population that you know clearly does not have the same kind of um, civil civil liberties, property rights, uh, ability to create uh, nonprofits that can push back and hold the government accountable, free press. You know, the overwhelming majority of the world's people don't have these things. Um, and um, my job was to help help empower them, help them in different ways. And I just started to learn about how money, like, it, it kind of came up not directly, but I, I just kept hearing about it, like, that they were having issues with, you know, receiving a bank wire, or the bank account got frozen, or it's really hard for them to, to interact with colleagues or family. Um, I started to just basically have them paint me a picture how the world financial system is gated and, and um, rent seeking and uh, divided. And I started to hear from some of them, uh, you know, going way back to 2011 with Julian Assange, who spoke 
at, at the conference that we organized, the Oslo Freedom Forum, the year before in 2010, you know, going way back to then, seeing WikiLeaks use Bitcoin as really the first um, political act of any cryptocurrency uh, was was WikiLeaks, and it, the use case remains the same. You know, money beyond control of the government. And um, just over time, I'm very skeptical, but like over time, just seeing more and more usage by people living under authoritarian regimes. Um, by 2017 or so, I was totally convinced um, that that this was something that was super important for the Human Rights Foundation to focus on, and every you know everything else since then has just been in terms of what I've been doing, working towards a goal of making financial freedom a bigger part of the conversation in, in the human rights field, and also again making it hopefully a bigger part of the conversation in the traditional finance space. Sure. And historically in the human rights field, has has money not been at the forefront? Is that not, you know, really something that's focused on as much as you think it should be? Exactly. Like you'll never, I mean, you know, having, having attended like probably hundreds of human rights events at this point, I mean, you'll never see an image of a banknote or hear about an issue with payments or like really even talk about hyperinflation. Um, you very rarely will even hear about CBDCs even in the last few years at human rights conferences. So um, I just think that the issue is super core. Um, it affects everybody in the world and money is used as a weapon by regimes against their people all the time. And yeah, it's just kind of lacking from the discourse. Um, and again, again, to underline, it's a two-way street. Like the human rights stuff is lacking from the discourse on Wall Street. Like the, these two fields believe they are separate from each other. But in reality, they're very connected. And I'm, I credit to Bitcoin for helping me understand that. Like, if I didn't learn about Bitcoin, I still wouldn't, I would know so little about finance and money and currency. Um, and, I, and I, you know, I'm grateful that, that Satoshi made this thing that, that kind of connected the two fields and that in a positive way can help us think about, you know, how we can, how we can help a lot of people achieve more financial freedom in a way that's peaceful, quiet, clever, uh, and very hard to stop. Yeah, love it. And, and there's a lot there, but from hyperinflation to U.S. monetary policy affecting the rest of the world, we got to dive into that in this hour. Uh, Aubrey has her hand raised. Aubrey, do you have a question for Alex? Yeah, just off that, and, I'm, and I don't mean to be pessimistic, but is it even conceivable to sort of work in these areas where there's such high concentrations of power? Or do you feel that it needs to honestly be its own separate thing, um, just on the government side and, and the policy side. If there's, you know, obviously this is what you do for a full time job, but it seems very difficult to to get any progression in these areas. And just want to get your thoughts if it should should be its own separate thing. Well, it, there's two things here. One is that it's very hard to track the impact of, of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies that actually are widely used for utility in difficult climates, mainly stable coins. Like it's, it's kind of hard to track that because this is personal financial business. Like who's going to go to the New York times and talk about how, how Bitcoin, you know, how Bitcoin like helped them. Like that, that there are very, 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 very rare exceptions, but generally speaking, like people are not going to say that. So there are a lot of major organizations that, globally are well known that have used Bitcoin, etc. And, and, you know, you would not know it unless you ask them, because why would they tell you? So part of it is that like, the revolution is obscured from our view. Uh, because again, people involved in it, there's a great Andreas Antonopoulos story about this from a long time ago, where he basically is like, you know, if you were a woman in Saudi Arabia, and you were able to use Bitcoin to help get out of the problem, like, would you go and tell the media about it? No. So like part of it is that it's obscured by the users. They don't want to necessarily talk about how they're essentially breaking an unjust law or violating capital controls or going contrary to the money you have for the war effort or whatever. Um, you know, it's, it's obscured partially by the, the users themselves who don't want their activity to be known. And it's obscured partially by the media, which is not interested in, in reporting on the, the rise of global Bitcoin adoption. So I think in many ways, um, it, it's hard for us to get a sense um, in the news space, in the idea space of what's actually happening out there. Um, but on the other hand, it's, it's, it's clearly unstoppable. Like even in China, where every phone is monitored, etc. Like if you send a WeChat 
payment to somebody, I mean, you could, you could, you could say it's for whatever. I mean, you could say it's for your friend mowing your lawn or whatever. Like the government doesn't know that on the other end, you, you sent someone some Bitcoin. Like it, it's, it's very, very difficult to stop peer to peer marketplaces, even in an age of like very, very complete surveillance because the two systems are not connected. Um, so even though the, like the world's biggest police state, the CCP has tried in many different ways to, to out, to outlaw and forbid and ban Bitcoin in different forms, whether it be mining, whether it be uh, fiat to, to crypto exchange, etc. Um, it persists. I mean, it, life finds a way, right? So, um, I'm very hopeful for that, that, that even in the craziest, like, like scenarios I've met, I've learned about Bitcoin being really helpful, whether it be in China or uh, when I went to the Africa Bitcoin conference last December, which I would encourage people to go to. It's an amazing event. Um, I mean, I met so many people from countries that, that we know that we talk so little about, let's say in the West, but like I met Bitcoiners from like Somaliland and Benin and Mogadishu in Somalia and the Congo, the DRC, like places that you would think are, if you just read the media, you would think are just these like war-torn uh, hellscapes, um, which in large part might be true. Um, but even there, or maybe even especially there, Bitcoin has, has taken root. And I think that that's, that's just um, something to be hopeful for, even if we, even if the task seems impossible and we and even if it's so hard to actually get the, the data on what's happening absolutely and, and we definitely have to touch on the future of bitcoin in places like china and africa i wanted to touch on something real quick which you discussed when you went on the lex friedman podcast a couple of years ago um you've already mentioned on this show that at this point uh, was it 70 percent of the world at this point uh, in your mind is under an authoritarian regime well it's it's not necessarily um my mind, so to speak, but it's, it's a, it's a, the human rights foundation is a nonprofit that I work for and we specialize in helping people who live under authoritarian regimes. So if, if you look at, um, you know, the, the total population of the earth is, is roughly 8 billion. Um, we're, we're talking about 72, 72% of the world's population uh, lives under either a partially or fully authoritarian regime, meaning a place that doesn't have property rights, uh, an independent Supreme Court, uh, a, a way for the media to speak freely without fear, um, a way to start a non an environmental nonprofit, maybe uh, maybe a union, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down. So, um, and of course, like these things aren't perfect in the other quarter of the planet either, but they're very they're much more robust, right? So, um, that that that's 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 kind of what I'm getting at here. Sure. And, and you mentioned a couple simple indicators in that other interview that I thought were worth you know just revisiting because I found them pretty fascinating. You brought up if in your country, comedians could actually get paid to make fun of the government on television. That was an indicator that you, know, you weren't living in an authoritarian regime. Um, if you could have a gay pride parade publicly, that was another indicator. Are there any other simple indicators um, you know, that you can kind of think of that you know, can be used to gauge whether or not a country is authoritarian? Yeah, those are good ones. I mean, obviously, if you can make a lot of money making fun of the government on TV, that's, that's a thing. Um, I think, and in a way that Jon Stewart would used to do it, like, like, seriously, not just making fun of the government, but like exposing corruption and war and stuff, like the real stuff. Um, I think that that sheds light. And of course, the gay pride parade thing is, is very important. Um, I mean, the town square test is a big one. Like, can you just go to the town square, whether whether that be literally a town square or, or perhaps a public town square, like the social media these days, and 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 expose something about the government that they don't want the public to know? And do you feel any fear about that? And are you going to get in trouble? Quite obviously, in a place like pre-revolution Syria, like you you would never do that because you would get killed immediately or your family would get taken away etc um whereas in norway it was probably totally fine so you have this whole stretch of political regimes between norway and north korea let's say where um there's shades of gray right um but i i i, I do think that like you know being able to operate against your government um without fear is, is, 
is is a pretty good test. And and I don't I don't think democracies obviously pass this test all the time. Obviously, you could think about the history of the United States and the civil rights struggle uh, and the assassination of prominent African American leaders. Um, you know, but over time, generally speaking, you would say that like the ability to criticize and speak out um, against you know the deep state or the military industrial complex or things like that within a country um, is a good marker of how free it is. Uh, you know, I would say that you know maybe a country like Norway is more free than America for sure on that. But America is definitely more free than Russia. Um, so, you know, there's there's a spectrum. There's a spectrum. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing that you touched on that I, I wanted to follow up on is you talked about, you know, United States monetary policy and its effect on the rest of the world. I'd be curious, you know, how is the monetary policy that's been implemented since, say, March 2020, like COVID era, um, and then the subsequent inflation, how has that affected the rest of the world in your eyes? Um. What do you what do you mean specifically? I just mean uh, Americans kind of live in this bubble, right? And mm -hmm. as I talked, you know, as I talked about earlier, I think a lot of times they don't process the idea that you know because we have the global reserve currency, because the U.S. dollar has the history that it has, and, and the rest of the world transacts with it, um, you know, that for, first of all, it could be we could be going through a major de-dollarization right now, the mm -hmm. weakening of of the currency and inflation could be persistent. Um, but when it comes to the rest of the world, like let's say an underdeveloped country in South America or Africa, I mean, for example, I learned a lot about El Salvador during 2020 and 2021. I had no idea that El Salvador didn't have its own currency. It, yeah. it was actually operating on US dollars, but not getting any of the benefit from sure. you know, that, that Americans might have gotten from money printing and things like that. So yeah, I, I'm just trying to get a little bit of info from, from your perspective, mm -hmm. like from the human rights perspective on you know covid money printing like that yeah. level of inflation yeah well a lot of people told me that we would never have inflation high inflation in advanced economies like the united states this was this was said uh post stimulus so spring two years ago spring 2021 and then you know quickly they turned out that was extremely wrong um I think there's some arrogance there. There's some like late imperial stage arrogance there for sure. Um, in all these proclamations about how the U S is just like invulnerable, et cetera, on this front. Um, you know, the, the big privilege of course, is that like we've been able to borrow, uh, $32 trillion and, um, run a debt empire, which has never been done before in history, by the way, all other empires were, were creditor empires. They had, they had stuff. Um, what we export are claims, IOUs. I mean, we, we, we export um, dollars and, and dollar um, assets, treasuries. So this is a totally new thing for the world. There's no precedent for it. We don't know how it's going to end. And, you know, we should be open about that. Like, this is the first debt empire ever. Um, but um, I, I think that in general, Americans are, including me until, you know, Pretty recently, until I started looking into it, pretty unaware that, you know, we get to kind of um, grow our social welfare state and foreign um, warfare state uh, sort of at the expense of other nations. Like, like you know, w we can borrow to do those things to the extent that no other nation can. And while there's positives there, it certainly helped us win the Cold War, etc., there's there's profoundly negative consequences for our society uh, that that have that have happened as a result of this including like pretty incredible inequality increasing inequality like if you just look at uh, household wealth i mean the share of household wealth and the uh you know bottom 50 percent you know has really plummeted since the early 90s when the greenspan kind of easy monetary policy started um the the percent that the one percent has held has has skyrocketed since then and, and the, these things got much more extreme during um the covid money printing cycle um i think that uh, the other kind of consequences of how we run our economy um which is pretty fairly unique i mean of course the eu japan other wealthy countries have similar structures but but we we, we kind of stand alone obviously as as, as the issuer of the world reserve currency um, something that I didn't really know until pretty recently was, was the sort of cost, what, what's the flip side? What's the cost? 
of, of this. And um, kind of the cost of our system is that uh, it requires like an input from somewhere else. We now call it globalization. Um, you know, it used to be colonialism back in the day, like pretty old, you know, old school, like, you know, warship colonialism um, was a way for like rich countries to go around the world and like seek uh, cheap uh, resources and labor to input into their economy to subsidize it against, uh, you know, a restive population um, and to ensure that things went smoothly, even even while they had protests and things like that. Like when you have a lot of cheap stuff coming in from somewhere else um you can you 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 can paper over a lot of problems um that has never been more true so you know when that breaks down you get big problems right so when when britain was the head of the western financial system and their conveyor belt of cheap resources and energy um slowed in the 20s due to india becoming more independent um we had a massive global depression. Uh, those things are very connected. In the 70s, when the West lost control over energy production, which is so essential for everything in life, um, due to OPEC becoming, OPEC nations actually becoming independent and oil production no longer being controlled by the Seven Sisters, which were Western corporations, we had a massive inflationary crisis again in the 70s. Um, and now I think a lot of the stresses on the global economy today are, are because of globalization um, kind of features maybe starting to break down a little bit like 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 you know maybe countries trying to become more independent trying to do bilateral trade trying to come up with their own currency arrangements that's going to have a pretty massive impact on our ability to subsidize and insulate our our populations from from you know what we would ascribe typically to like things that could only happen in faraway places like massive inflation um uh control on energy prices, things like that, things like that. Sure. And would you say that, you know, this next decade might be shaping up to look similar to the 70s? And, and if so, do you think that we'll people will turn to Bitcoin instead of gold the way that they did in the 70s? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the U.S. government made a sort of a conscious effort to uh, demonetize gold. I mean, FDR in the thirties, um, stripped Americans of the right to gold, of the right to own gold. I mean, executive order 6102, which, which clearly was on the mind of Satoshi given the <laughs> 2016, um, block, block blocks between each difficulty adjustment and given Satoshi's birthday, uh, which, which is the, the date in April when FDR passed the order, and the year that Satoshi chose as their birthday is the year that Americans could own gold again. But from the early 30s to the mid-70s, gold was illegal to have in the United States. So, um, and, the, and then, of course, Nixon finished the job internationally by preventing other countries from redeeming their dollars for gold, which was the whole point of the system to begin with was that, hey, we're as good as gold. And then we just like rug pulled everybody. So I think the US government made a conscious try to effort with its allies to, 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 you know, break gold's role in the financial world, like, um, and when you could custody it, like, like, like it was possible to do. Uh, because of gold's technology, it's just not, um, it, it, it's it's not particularly um, easy for people to self custody gold and use it in transactions. So it, it it sort of over time lends itself to be custodied. Well, that's easy to centralize and, and take over, right? Um, and to accumulate into big, big, big powers. So um, that that happened, and and gold was basically stripped out of the world economy um, and replaced by the U.S. Treasury, as far as like the old, the, the sort of primary collateral finance. And again, it was made illegal in a lot of places. I, I think gold's making a comeback now. But I, I, I do think that um, the promise that gold had to hedge monetary policy is what Bitcoin can offer people, but but just way better. Because again, gold is not something you can <laughs> like easily put on an airplane, go somewhere with a large amount, or even like a reasonable amount. Um, it can be detected in a metal detector, et cetera. It's not, not easy to move around. You can't teleport it. It clearly is not fit to be the digit, the back, backbone of a 
digital economy in the 21st century. Um, and it's too easily, too easily corrupted and centralized. Um, and like one day, I mean, we're going to find a lot more gold in outer space. I mean, so it's not a permanent solution either. Um, and I just think that Bitcoin, you know, Satoshi studied what happened to gold. Clearly, if you look at the writings of Satoshi and the, the imagery inside Bitcoin, they, they clearly looked at what happened with gold and they realized that we needed a digital gold. And um, I think that's that's a really important part of the cypherpunk story is 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 realizing that digital cash wasn't going to be enough. Digital cash is not enough. If, if you don't have the digital gold piece, then the digital cash piece can be abused. So that the brilliance of Bitcoin was creating digital gold to digital cash and the same thing. Um, and, and, you know, Satoshi and the people who contributed and who were cited in the, in the white paper um, had a lot of them had actually worked on these other like DigiCash, eCash projects in the 90s that, that failed because they were, the issuance was centralized. So again, they had eCash, cool. It was totally private, like way more private than, than like, you know, Monero or whatever. And, um, and yet it was totally centralized. So it, it, it could get shut down. So the, 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 the sort of genius was figuring out that you could, you could have both. And, and that's, that's very much, I think, to your question, um, going to be on people's minds. Like if you don't want to get deplatformed and you don't want to get devalued in the coming decade, you're going to want Bitcoin. Absolutely. Self-custody of Bitcoin, uh, you know, I'm assuming is the implication there. Uh, yeah. Publi yeah. Publius uh, joined the show and raised his hand briefly. He's a contributor to the show. Publius, did you have a question for Alex? Uh, yeah, sure. Thanks, Alex, for hopping on. I've uh, been enjoying following your uh, your work over the past like half a dozen years, basically. Um, so thanks for everything you've done. Thank um, you. I, I just tweeted uh, something that was actually a question for you. I just wanted to show you the visual. Mm -hmm. um, basically, uh, this was a slide in a presentation Peter Thiel had done during Bitcoin Bitcoin 2022, I think. Mm -hmm. and it shows gold versus equities. Gold in January 1980 uh, was worth $2.5 to, uh, market cap versus global equities at the exact same market cap. Versus today ish, 2022, 2023, global equities are at 115 trillion, uh, whereas gold is only at 12 trillion. So, what do you um, what do you think uh, sort of caused that that um, parity back in like 1980, uh, seeming parity? And what do you think caused the sort of imbalance uh, today, where equities are 10x larger than gold? Like what do you what what do you kind of like uh how how do you evaluate that that yeah it's a great question uh, I mean it's financial engineering I mean post seventy one political economy is all about financial engineering it's all about making something look like it's there when it's not <laughs> this would be like uh, uh, whatever it is T TVL or whatever you know um, it's it's it, yeah on paper that's how much we're worth but like how much are you really worth. Um, and I think a lot of those equities are juiced up um, by a construct that is is both rent seeking and somewhat vacuous. Um, I think a lot of those companies are are very, I mean, obviously very valuable, but are they as valuable as they appear to be today versus goods and services? No, I don't think so. Um, I think that the the numbers in 1980 are probably a lot closer to the the real valuation of of what like a fair shake would be in terms of like real estate versus cattle versus commodities versus gold versus like stock and companies that probably was much more measurably accurate then. I think today the the stock and companies and financial instruments have been grossly distorted um, by partly by government subsidy and government backstop and government nationalization at, at the cost of it's that that's not free to just like nationalize credit markets. There are costs to that, but governments do it anyway. Like, I mean, think about Japan. I mean, Jap Japan is a huge country. It was the, it, until pretty recently, the second largest economy in the world. I mean, it's a country that owns the government owns half the stock market. So it's an extreme case, but like, what, what do you think the Japanese stock market would be worth if the government owned zero percent of the stock market and, and didn't didn't get involved? Like, just think about it like that. Um, these 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 equities to 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 um, 
and bonds, really. I mean, these equities and bonds to, to get to the heights that they're at in the like, you know, and I mean, maybe maybe we're starting to see a decline, perhaps. But to get to the heights where we're at today, there has to be just like enormous financial engineering and, and political engineering, like like basically governments have mandated that like financial institutions hold a certain number of these bonds and securities like these things are known as like hqla or whatever and there's like a, a percentage you have to have or else like you get fined or you get stripped of your ability to have a financial institution so there's just an enormous amount of financial engineering that has occurred since the late 70s and early 80s that, that just didn't happen beforehand um now is that a permanent fixture of our economy i mean this would be the question and i don't know but I do think that as we, we enter more into a world that, where Bitcoin plays a bigger and bigger role, I think, I think a lot of that, you know, gets shown to be a castle uh, built on sand. Like, I, I think a lot of this stuff starts to crumble as people actually um, flock to something real uh, that's, that's, that's not sort of imaginary. Um, I think that that's uh, very ironically, what people accuse, you know, mainstream people accuse Bitcoin of being is like, you know, not backed by anything. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll see about that. Um, let's see in 10, 20 years what the uh, current kind of financial system looks like versus Bitcoin in terms of, you know, what is quote unquote backed by something. Totally. May I ask one more question, P.O.? Yeah, of sure. course. Of course. Absolutely. So Alex, um, I'm assuming you're like... Um, I, I don't know this for sure, but I'm assuming you have you have like pretty good knowledge of um, sort of like uh, late communist countries like the USSR um, to some to some degree or another. And I'm wondering if so, um, what lessons do you think there are for, um, say, a country like the USSR in the 80s going into the 90s uh, to give to countries uh, like the USA today? And do you see any parallels between uh, those two uh, sort of um, regimes in their respective times? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. I mean, obviously, they're very different in many ways. Uh, but um, I think the big lesson, obviously, from the USSR is that uh, it's gradually then suddenly, like, very, very, very few people were predicting the collapse of the USSR. It's sort of like the Arab Spring, um, or the Asian financial crisis, or any of these like world changing events. Um, very few of them are predicted by I me. Mean, COVID. Um, uh, you know, um, the Russian war, um, it, it, Putin's invasion of Ukraine. I mean, very, 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 I mean, that one was probably the most obvious, I guess, compared to the other ones I mentioned, but very few of these world changing events are predictable. Um, I think that's the number one lesson we can learn. And then I think the second one is that like, you know, the government ultimately fears the people. I mean, what, what helped bring down the USSR in many ways was of course its own ineptitude. If you, you know, I think the HBO show Chernobyl does a great job of showing how ultimately the bureaucratic ineptitude of the Soviet system led to its own demise. But, um, you know, the government fears the people, right? So things like outside information, peer-to-peer -peer discussions between scientists like Sakharov and, and those inside the Soviet Union, etc. Um, scientific exchange, um, uh, culture, media, uh, independent newspapers, like all these things were really dangerous for the Soviet Union. Um, and I would never conflate a totalitarian regime like the Soviet Union with, with the American Republic, but I, I would say that um, we need to recognize why those things were dangerous to totalitarianism, and we need to preserve them in our society as much as possible and support them. And to that extent, I think Bitcoin is, is, is such an important tool there because it checks the power of the government against the individual uh, in terms of, you know, ec economics and finance. Like it it gives people property rights. It gives them an ability to be sovereign against the state if, if it's if it's held in a self-custodial way. And it makes, um, it just sort of shifts the power in the same way that, you know, uh, like the printing press or the internet uh, once did. Uh, I really, really do think that. Any follow-up, Publius? Yeah, my, 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 I think, I think that's, that's all like extremely well said. And, my my concern just to voice just to voice it is um yeah the ussr was incredibly poorly run bureaucratic and um there are extreme degrees of absurdity that expose themselves ex expose ex itself toward the end of the ussr's lifespan 
Um, but I'm I, I, this this the similarity I've I've been seeing is like the USSR basically like open themselves up in ways they weren't ready to be open and and kind of were like mimicking the US and they failed and the US kind of like drew, drew them toward that and it feels as though the US with its uh sort of like uh, FedNow service uh, which is basically a CBDC in spirit um like uh, rolling out soon and and uh, just the financial um surveillance and and capital controls seem more like a move in the direction of imitating China um, and kind of like the sort of like more like that the a different and basically it's some, doing something that they are not they are not and not really realizing that a lot of uh, what makes them makes America and the United States or whatever as good as it is is it attracts people who value freedom of speech freedom of thought freedom to innovate freedom to build uh, and things like that. And by moving toward something that looks like China, um, I think we underestimate how quickly things can shift in the U S uh, as a function. I mean, sure. I mean, obviously again, uh, gradually than suddenly, but for a variety of reasons, I don't think the U S is anywhere close to as brittle as the Soviet union was. Um, you know, I, I get that one of the major reasons the Soviet union collapsed was their, prolonged invasion of Afghanistan, um, which certainly is taking its toll today in terms of Putin's invasion of Ukraine on Russia itself. Um, and, and, you know, I would say that the forever wars, post 9-11 wars in America took, took arguably similar tolls on America in many ways, in terms of indebting us, in terms of turning us into a fear society, etc. But like big factors like demographics, geography, resources, food independence, uh, resource independence, energy independence, like America is just so set up. Um, I think, I think, you know, I think we're going to have a difficult, probably 10 to 15 years, maybe, um, economically, depending on how things go. But I mean, some of these other countries are going to totally collapse. I mean, it's just like a China's demographics and I don't know, I I would not be that bullish on, on them. So I don't think we're in for like a collapse of America anytime soon. I, in fact, I think that America really jives with Bitcoin, at least in its uh, like founding ideals. I think they are really well suited to a Bitcoin age potentially in the future. Like if you think about free speech, property rights, open capital markets, these are things that the founders of the United States um, enjoyed, wanted, aspired to, uh, wanted to enshrine in the Bill of Rights, etc. Um, and Bitcoin is those things like embodied, basically. And if you think about what the CCP or Putin needs, or the USSR needed, they needed um, confiscation, uh, censorship and closed capital markets. And I think Bitcoin's just really bad news for dictators. So if we're going to move to a world where uh, because they can't control it. And, and people having more power is really bad for them. Whereas people having more power is not necessarily bad for democracy. It's kind of what a democracy is supposed to do. It's supposed to like let the people be in control and kind of be a mechanism for steering. Um, obviously, I think the U.S. experiment has outgrown that, but but that's that's kind of more in line with what we're we're all about. Um, whereas it's a de- deadly, deadly thing for a dictatorship: uh, people controlling the money, like deadly, deadly. So um, I, I'd be pretty bullish about like you know like America you know, in the 21st, later in the 21st century, in a world where Bitcoin is playing a huge role. It would definitely make sense. Uh, Trevor, you've had your hand raised. Question for Alex? Yeah, Alex, thank you for uh, so much insight here. I'm curious, when it comes to emerging markets and Bitcoin adoption, like, what is the primary onboarding mechanism right now? Like, how it happens on the ground? And then how do stable coins uh, play into that in terms of, do they have a different onboarding path? Or how do people choose between the two options? And then finally, how could we hypothetically, like, lever up the Bitcoin adoption in these markets, 10x, 100x, etc.? Yeah, so... You know, each country's different, actually. You'll look at different data. Like some countries, stable coins are massive, and some countries, they're not that big um, in terms of, let's say, overall cryptocurrency volume. Um, uh, like in Nigeria, for example, Tether is way more used and voluminous than Bitcoin. Um, but in Zimbabwe, maybe not. So um, 
it, it just depends. It's country by country. Uh, I, I think that um, there's kind of like similar trends that you would observe in like a rich country like America, where, you know, the majority of people involved in cryptocurrency are not, I mean, they're just, they're just speculating. I, I think that's, pro that's very true. If you go to the developing world, like it, it's pretty insane, actually. It, it's wild to see this, the number of scams and Ponzi's in, in West Africa or Southeast Asia is, is, is just insane. Uh, a lot of them are, I would argue actually perpetrated by Western actors sort of like in this neo-colonial way. Like, I don't know if anyone's familiar with Axie infinity, but that whole construct was so insane. And what they, what, the, what they were able to do to the, you know, these workers essentially in places like the Philippines, there's a good Bloomberg article on it, but um, there's a lot of that going on and there's a lot of Binance going on. I mean, basically Binance is just so massive in the developing world. I mean, it's, in a lot of places, it's really like the way that people onboard, um, which obviously presents a bunch of challenges and problems, given that they work with governments, they work with the Russian government, they they will comply with whatever. So um, I think there's challenges. I think generally speaking, like in terms of volume, from what I've seen, people are very reliant on centralized services like like Binance. At the same time, you're seeing like, a, like these like growing, you know, and I... I, I I don't know if there's like stable coin communities, let's say. I'm not, I'm not sure if that's a thing. I think people use Tether and to a lesser extent Circle, et cetera, and to a way lesser extent some of the smaller stable coins. I, I think these are used, um, you know, to do business, uh, to use exchanges and, 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 to, and to get the priv privilege of the dollar without having a, an ID. Like I, I really do think that... Um, being able to hold a dollar asset on your phone without ID is a really, really major humanitarian invention. Like one of the biggest ones of the last 20 years. I, 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 I hesitate though to like promote Tether um, because I know it's quite fragile. It could be quite fragile. Like I, I, I think it's business is really good. I mean, I think if anyone looking at it, it's clear they're like printing a ton of money by, by holding treasuries and looking at, at, at what, what those are yielding right now. I, I, I think they've made like $400 million or something in Q4 of last year. Um, and, um, they're buying, I think more Bitcoin with, with that. So as a business, they might be robust, but, but regulatory, I mean, the U S government, I don't know, you know, they could just take them down any day. So I'm, I'm a little worried about like kind of promoting these big stable coins. Um, but I, I certainly acknowledge how important they are to people. And, and you know, clearly, like, I can't judge. I, I have a dollar bank account, right? So the importance of someone living in Lebanon to have the equivalent on their phone is, is cannot be understated. Um, but, uh, but, but I don't think there's, like, a soul to that. I don't think there's, like, communities being built in Turkey around Tether. I, I'm not sure that that's happening from what I can see. Well, Alex, if, if yeah, the number ahead. doesn't, I was just going to say, if the number doesn't go up, it's hard to inspire community based on the rest yeah, of the crypto well, ecosystem. Right, but, the, but there's way more Tether users in Turkey than Bitcoin users. What I'm saying, I guess, is like it, it, what there is happening, what, what is happening, though, in a lot of places is is like grassroots Bitcoin education and adoption, um, sort of Bitcoin focused, like, it, it, you know, grassroots, like locally grown indigenous, uh, like, spontaneous communities and constructs like this is something I'm tracking. I mean, now it's um, really popped up uh, in, in more than 20 countries in the global South. There, there are like Bitcoin communities and, and they're small. I mean, they're very modest, but they're real and, and they're, they're, they're growing and they're, I think unstoppable. Like, I think that these are just going to continue to, to grow and clone themselves and, uh, kind of like improve and, and, and um, and, uh, kind of proliferate in this way. Um, and, and it's no coincidence that, 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 that these communities are, are happening in places that have seen the most sort of economic distress have been screwed over the hardest by the IMF. Like if you look at cryptocurrency usage, which of course is, is pretty dominated by stable coins and Bitcoin and, and, and maybe Ethereum, I mean, just those three things alone account for probably, I mean, 95% plus of what you're seeing, but, 
uh, you're looking at um, countries like Argentina, Nigeria, uh, Indonesia, Brazil, the Philippines. These are big, big countries that 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 have had really problematic history with currency and with abuse by foreign lenders, etc. I mean, some of these countries have 25 to 30 percent based on polls that I've seen, um, like, let's say, uh, cryptocurrency users out of out of, let's say, Internet users as a whole between the ages of 16 and 64. Some of these countries, you're like a third of the Internet users have dabbled in cryptocurrency, which is totally mind blowing. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of Americans that have dabbled in cryptocurrency, too. I mean, if you look at the numbers out of like a Coinbase filing or you look at some of these polls in the mainstream media, you're probably looking at 60 to 80 million Americans. So it's not trivial here either. Um, but in in some of these developing countries, it's truly, truly uh, staggering, the percentage of people who've, who've gotten involved in this. And, you know, I think there's a there's a small but growing percentage of people who are like in it to win it in terms of building out Bitcoin communities, educating people, building the right tools. Uh, but they they kind of pale in comparison to the total overall number of cryptocurrency users. Like again, a place like India, which may have probably hundreds of millions of people. I mean, Bloomberg had a crazy stat uh, that there was something like 300 million cryptocurrency users in India. I, I think that's very, very generous um, probably. But But I think that's probably accurate in like two years, right? Um, maybe by 2025, uh, I think we hit, we probably hit a billion users of cryptocurrency pretty easily by 2025 would be my guess. And I say users as in like people who hold it or, or, or have held it recently. Um, you know, maybe we're not there yet, but, but clearly there's tens of millions, at least if you just look at the number of people who use Bitcoin, rather cryptocurrency exchanges in India. Um, but a lot of them are just gambling, speculating. I mean, what are the actual number that like are educating themselves and self-custodying Bitcoin? Very small. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't count these communities out. Like these communities are fierce, ferocious. Um, and I would look to them. Like if you're interested in learning more, there are four events happening this year in the global South, um, or developing world, uh, that, that I would ID as, as very high signal. One would be the Africa Bitcoin Conference in Ghana in December. One would be the Indonesia Bitcoin Conference in uh, Bali in uh, at the end of October. I'll be going to both of those. There's also SatsConf in Brazil in, uh, I believe, late late October, early November. Um, and then there's also um, the uh, India, uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin for India Conference, which I think is in December. Um, so, I mean, I think... You know, and obviously Ethereum has would I obviously be the other cryptocurrency community that has a similarly global scope. But but these events are are truly awesome. Like the the Africa one I went to, this is the first event I ever went to. I was there for almost five days. Like no one tried to sell me anything. No one tried to like sell me a token or whatever. That was pretty cool. So I mean, even <laughs> at like hardcore Bitcoin events in the United States, there's always people trying to sell you shit. So. So that was really, really cool. And I think part of that's because the, the people who are organizing these events are not industry people necessarily. Like the woman who organizes the Africa Bitcoin Conference, she's like a civil rights activist. So I think that just makes a different event. So anyway, I would encourage you all to check that stuff out. Absolutely. They sound like great events, especially the stuff in Africa. I think a lot of people don't understand. I mean, uh, we've said it a few times during this show, so I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I really do sincerely believe that Americans aren't processing the role of Bitcoin specifically internationally in countries like Nigeria, for example. I mean, you brought up that Brazil has one of those conferences. I mean, these countries, is Nigeria especially, just from the research that I've done, really seem to be on a path of adoption with Bitcoin that I think a lot of Americans probably aren't processing. And not only are they not processing that it's happening, but they're not processing the like the reason and the reasons why why it's actually happening. And I totally relate to what you said, Alex, about not getting pitched because I had an agency call with a web development agency yesterday, and the last thing I expected was to get pitched, but I got pitched on an NFT that uh, backs. Uh, bottles of coffee flavored Patron. So I didn't have that on my bingo card in the morning. It can get pitched at any time in, <laughs> in, in crypto. Um, Trevor has his hand raised. Trevor, do you have a follow up for Alex? Yeah, Alex, I'm just curious. Do you think like mass adoption for Bitcoin looks more like individual users becoming more sovereign and, and 
coming onto Bitcoin or do you think it looks more like, let's say, businesses or even like the Western market having a bigger influence that then, you know, tips other countries over? Like how what is your kind of view for like how mass adoption plays out, I guess? Well, I think they're related, right? I mean, I think that you would not have like BlackRock being interested in an ETF if 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 a sufficient number of individuals in the American financial system and 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 leadership especially weren't like bullish on Bitcoin, you know, I I think they would be staying far. I mean, the guy who runs BlackRock said Bitcoin was a scam like three years ago. So I I think that like you know the gradual kind of inexorable rise of Bitcoin drives some of these things. Um, but you know, ultimately, I do think all these numbers and things like that that you see are really juiced up by centralized services like Binance. And, you know, the actual percentage of people who self-custody their Bitcoin and are knowledgeable about it and help and hold the seed and understand what it is and um, use it effectively is, is, you know, but both in advanced economies and in developing countries is, is low. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, my, my guess would be no more than five to ten percent of users, uh, maybe lower. Um, I, I don't think you know. Certainly lower if you're asking like who's running a full node or whatever. But that's not. I don't think that's like a fair way to judge it. Like not everybody's going to run a full node who uses Bitcoin. So, um, but like the the fact is like who's actually self custodying would be my my litmus test, and I think it's probably pretty low. I think that's like the main thing to do is educate people about self custody because you might have this tidal wave of traditional finance services offering Bitcoin products in the coming decade, um, whether it be ETFs or like, you know, kind of a Robin Hood style, like, you know, get Bitcoin exposure by sending us your money. Um, I, I think that could really, really accelerate. You could have this tsunami of products and services that like offer you quote unquote, like exposure to Bitcoin. But I, I, that obviously doesn't bring the revolution I'm looking for. Like, that's not helpful really in any way. I mean, sure, it's helpful in that maybe the price of Bitcoin goes up and that's like this virtuous cycle where it brings in more interest and brings in more UX people and brings in more designers and it brings in more coders and it improves Bitcoin because there's like more interest in it. That's that's always been a story of Bitcoin and its market cycles. Um, but it doesn't really immediately help like the end users so much. So... I, I, you know, for whatever it's worth, like what we'll try to focus on is self custody, you know, for people living under dictatorships, obviously, you know, custody doesn't help them. That's not a helpful solution. Uh, non KYC self custody on mobile is our, is our big focus at the moment. I mean, that's really big. There's a pretty awesome update today from Phoenix, which is a, they make a really great lightning wallet. Um, Built out of uh, France, async makes it. Uh, they just had an update today uh, where they're they're leveraging splicing basically to make their Lightning wallet like way easier and what to use and way more powerful. Like you don't have to pay this like one percent fee anymore. Um, it has trustless swaps. It's pretty cool. You should definitely check that out. I, I believe the Android version is going to come out soon. But I mean, that's a wallet to begin with that I've already been. People are using all over the place. It works like a charm. So I mean, I'd love to see more of that. I'm also very aware that. Um, Bitcoin, as it's currently built, cannot support billions of self-custodial users, really. Uh, that, that, that seems like a stretch, given the current like, way Bitcoin is, is, is built. Um, I, I do think, however, like people are iterating really in an innovative way over the last year, especially on, you know, not, not implementations, of course, but like on, on, on code and concepts for, let's say, UTXO sharing. So like, how can we pool UTXOs so that many people can use them, you know, with an element of self-custody. There's a lot of protocol design right now being done in Bitcoin to try to figure that out. Like, what does the world look like where like 8 billion people could self-custody Bitcoin? Um, Clearly, that can't be done right now with Bitcoin and Lightning, um, but it could be done maybe with some of these other ideas. I think that's really interesting. Very, very important. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I think that it would be a very partial success wouldn't call it a failure, but, you know, a very partial success if we live in a world in 40 years where very, very few people um, self-custody Bitcoin. And and that's, it's like so expensive to make an on-chain transaction that it's really hard to like get your own Bitcoin. Um, 
I think that that would be a partial, only a partial success. But look, again, the good news is there's people not only working on protocol design, but doing other stuff. Like, like obviously you can like exchange a private key in a way that doesn't require uh, a fee. Like you can, you can just exchange literally like open dime. Think about that. You can just physically exchange a key. So there's, there's companies like commerce block making wallets like mercury wallet that allow you to, to basically exchange the secret to the Bitcoin rather than the Bitcoin itself. So there's, there's a ton of thinking being done into like, how can we actually scale to billions of people um, given the given given the trade-offs that Bitcoin needs to be to to, to be Bitcoin, um, which which obviously include being able to run a full node easily, verifiability, auditability, twenty-one million, etc. So so that's that's a that's a really interesting area to look at right now. Absolutely, and Alex, we're we're at time. If I could just sneak one more question in, I mean, we mm-hmm. could have we could talk to you for hours, obviously, but if Thank I could you. sneak. <laughs> One more question in is, you know, you have your thesis that you've discussed on other podcasts now for a, a number of years of number go up equals freedom go up. I'd love to know what you think about the development of the ordinals protocol. Does it just pretty linearly fit into this in the sense that it incentivizes miners, you know, it increases activity on the Bitcoin, you know, on the on Bitcoin's mm-hmm. network, and as a result, you know, theoretically will will help with number go up? Is that the way you think of ordinals or are you thinking about it in a totally different way? Yeah, I mean, you know, in part, like I, I would say that um, in what I've written, I think in the end you get like exchanges and, and we'll see what finance does. But like, obviously, like <laughs> that they, they're not going to like roll out lightning deposits and withdrawals because because of the privacy benefits. Right. <laughs> That's not what they're going to do. They're going to roll it out because it saves money. Right. So I think Bitcoin has these really cool incentives where people driven by self-interest um, end up helping other people. And it's a really unique kind of way of a really unique set of incentives. So it's like, um, I mean, in theory, capitalism does this, but like it, it, not uh, yeah, obviously, as we all know, not often in practice, given the, the, you know, stuff I've written about with the world bank, the IMF, the fact that democratic societies that we know as capitalist sort of rely on exploiting other countries, etc. So the idea that like the Bitcoin like ecosystem um, kind of relies on basically translating greed into 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 freedom. Like it it's a machine that does that. So you're gonna have actors come in and be self-interested and have an externality of that be more freedom for other people. And that's that's really cool. So um I I totally see that with with anything that sort of drives um, interest in making Bitcoin transactions, right? Because whether it be ordinals or, or anything else, and I, I've, I've been pretty consistent about saying this about ordinals, but yeah, I mean, look, if it's going to drive demand up for the Bitcoin block space, which which I think will eventually be seen as, as a pretty exquisitely rare place um, over time, like digital real estate, essentially, right? Uh, that, that can't be you know, can't make any more of it. Um, it's, it's very time oriented. You can only do so much every 10 minutes. Uh, I think that, um, that, that's just going to, again, this virtuous cycle of like, okay, well, if there's more demand for Bitcoin and then, then there's going to be over time, more value in mining and more value in, in the economy. And then there's going to be more people coming in to make Bitcoin better. So, uh, I would, I would absolutely agree. And, um, I think ordinals is very different, though, from like what happened during like the block size wars. Like it, it doesn't it doesn't sort of threaten Bitcoin. I, I don't think, at least, it it just increases. You know, collectibles increase people's interest in using the Bitcoin blockchain and increase, in my view, demand for the space. Well, we'll see. But um, but that's at least what it proved briefly to be able to do. We'll see if it can do that over duration. But um, that's very different from trying to co-opt Bitcoin and change Bitcoin and make Bitcoin something that profits some people, but, but kind of ruins the core decentralized thesis. So I, I'm, I'm pretty, op, uh, I'm pretty optimistic about, about stuff like that. Um, yeah, just sort of strengthening Bitcoin. Incredibly well put. Uh, you know, people can obviously follow you on Twitter, Alex, the books that you've written, Hidden Repression, also check your financial privilege. They can buy those if they want to read, you know, some of your writing all in one place. Where else can people find you? 
Uh, well, you can find me here. Obviously, there's all these different social media experiments, but uh, better in person. Um, the Oslo Freedom Forum conference series, we run it. Uh, there'll be one in New York on September 28th. Um, the uh, flagship one is in Norway. It'll be next year, June 3 to 5. You can find me there. I will also, like I said, be at the Indonesia Bitcoin conference at the end of October, and I'll be at the Africa Bitcoin conference in early December, December 1 to 3. Um, but yeah, thank you for having me. Our pleasure. It was fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, we do the show every Tuesday. Follow the Bitcoin Show account. Follow Alex. Uh, you know, It was such a pleasure having him on the show. Make sure that you, if you want to share the show with people outside of Twitter, check out the Apple or Spotify podcast. And yeah, uh, thanks again, Alex. Alex Gladstein, better in person, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> Hope so. All right. Take care, everybody. Yep. See ya. Later. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. See you next week.